Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Greetings, everyone. In this episode, we continue our look at King Benjamin's incredible speech with Mosiah 3. In chapter 2, Benjamin taught his people about the ethic of infinite service toward one another and toward God. He also coronated his son, Mosiah, as king and charged his people to resist contention and instead follow the Lord. Now, that was his initiation, his first teaching to prepare his people for what was to follow, the words of an angel. And that's what we see in chapter 3. He begins to quote an angel. It turns out that part of what he meant when he said that he didn't gather his people together to trifle with words, that he'd received a message from an angel and he needed to deliver that message to the people. Since Mosiah has now been coronated, this makes Benjamin more prophet than king at this point. It also brings to mind another prophetic figure of the Book of Mormon. In 2 Nephi chapter 10, we see Jacob addressing the Nephites, and he delivers to them the message of an angel. Remarkably, Jacob will show up throughout Benjamin's speech. Another prophetic figure that we will see make their way into Benjamin's speech, and particularly in Mosiah 3, is Abinadi. In our overview of the book of Mosiah, we talked about the timeline of this book. And the misconception that Benjamin gives his speech before Abinadi does. That's not the case. Abinadi comes first, and I cited research done by John Hilton to demonstrate how that works. In case you missed it, I'll just give a summary of that research to make sure that we're all on the same page. This is all from Hilton's essay in a volume on Abinadi. Benjamin speaks in 124 B.C., we don't have an exact year for Abinadi's speech, but Alma the Elder dies in 91 BC at the age of 82, meaning that he was born in 173 BC. If we assume that he heard Abinadi speak around the age of 20, that means Abinadi gives his speech around 153 BC, about 30 years before Benjamin's speech. We don't know exactly how Abinadi influences Benjamin but it's clear that he does. Interestingly, Abinadi was also heavily influenced by Jacob. So we have Jacob, Abinadi, and Benjamin all drinking from the same well. So let's get after it with verses 1 through 15. Benjamin begins quoting the angel in verses 2 and 3, where the angel tells Benjamin to wake up and hear him. What fascinates me about this is that Benjamin has just finished telling his people to open up their ears and wake up. In other words, Benjamin has just held himself up as an example of service, and now he's holding, and now he's an example of being awake to the word of the Lord. This also makes me think of President Nelson and how upfront he has been about the Lord waking him up in the middle of the night to speak to him. Sometimes I teach my students about this philosophical term, epistemology, which is basically the philosophy of what qualifies as knowledge. The example that I give is of a math test. Let's imagine you're in a math class taking a test. The teacher wants you to show all of your work. You finish the test in minutes, way before everyone else. Turn it in to the teacher, 
and every answer is correct, but there's no work shown. Your teacher asks you about it, and you say, well, I don't know how to show my work. For every problem, I just prayed, and a number appeared in my head. So after giving my students this scenario, I ask them, what grade should the teacher give you? Students often shout out that they deserve an A since they got every problem correct. And I think the thought of failing a math test, even if it's only a hypothetical math test, gives them anxiety. After some initial debate, I usually follow that debate up by asking why the teacher asks you to show your work. There's typically one kid that says, because Mr. So-and-so is so mean. But the kids get there in the end. Math isn't about answers. It's about a process. The teacher isn't testing if you know the answers. The teacher is testing if you can solve the problem. And floating visions of numbers doesn't demonstrate that. Now, some people don't believe getting woken up in the middle of the night by revelation is a thing. They don't accept that as a legitimate way to gain knowledge. Those same people likely also don't believe in divine appearances to 14-year-olds or angels delivering gold plates or putting a stone in a hat to translate a book. I guess my point here is that baked into the restoration is a belief in revelation in its various forms, that that is a way that we can gain knowledge. Or better yet, foundational to the restoration is a participation in revelation. It's not enough that Benjamin or President Nelson gets woken up at night. We need to also wake up, so to speak, and open our ears and our hearts and our minds to the mysteries that God is trying to reveal to us. And it's important to realize that that's not a broadly accepted idea, but that the restoration came in this day at this time, despite the fact that that belief clashes with other things in our world. Now, revelation also isn't a justification for disregarding what we might call secular learning. President Nelson didn't simply pray his way into being a heart surgeon. If we are going to effectively participate in the work of the restoration that is meant for this day and age, we need to be in tune with heaven and competent here on earth. Going back to Benjamin, after the angel wakes him up, he says that he's going to declare glad tidings of great joy. Those words sound familiar and our minds immediately go to the nativity story. But the history of those words goes a little further back. Glad tidings has also been translated good news. Paul, who is our first New Testament author, uses the Greek word euangelion to articulate this idea. You may be more familiar with its translation, gospel. In other words, the angel is telling Benjamin that he's there to declare the gospel of great joy. The word gospel was about the good news of a king and the kingdom that he would bring. In Paul's day, you may hear the gospel of Caesar, for example. But the word shows up in Jewish scripture, with particular reference to the Messiah. The following is a quote by N.T. Wright, famed New Testament scholar, about Paul's use of this word. My favorite example is Paul's use of euangelion, usually translated gospel or good news. There's no doubt in my mind that when Paul uses it, he's evoking the cognate verb in Isaiah 40, verse 9, and 52, verse 7. The good news of Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment of the good news envisaged in that central prophetic passage. 
Paul has not derived the idea from his surrounding culture. But equally, there is no doubt in my mind, though there is some in others, that when Paul used it, not least in Galatians and Romans, he was conscious that for many of his hearers, the gospel of Caesar would be the primary resonance, and he was determined to confront the grandiose imperial claims with the far superior claims of Jesus. So, Paul is referencing Isaiah to describe who Jesus is. Could Benjamin's angel also be referencing Isaiah? Well, conveniently, one of the places in Isaiah that N.T. Wright directs us to is Isaiah 52, 7-10, a scripture which also features prominently in Abinadi's speech. Here's what Isaiah 52, 7-10 says. You'll recognize it. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, and the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This scripture tells of a destroyed and oppressed Jerusalem, which is surrounded by hills, what the scriptures call mountains. And the idea is that after a season of oppression, there's this messenger who appears on one of the surrounding hills. And he shouts, good tidings, good news. And his message is, thy God reigneth. In other words, your king is on his throne again, and the kingdom he will bring will be a kingdom of joy, and everyone will see it. Abinadi sees the prophets who testify of the Messiah as those with beautiful feet, but the person with the most beautiful feet is the Messiah himself. Paul sees Jesus conquering sin and death as the enthronement of Jesus. That's how they interpret gospel. Let's see what Benjamin's angel thinks about glad tidings. In verses 5 through 10, he says, For behold, the time cometh and is not far distant, that with power the Lord omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men, and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay, and shall go forth amongst men, working mighty miracles such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. And he shall cast out devils, or the evil spirits which shall dwell in the hearts of the children of men. And lo, he shall suffer temptations, and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore. So great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the creator of all things from the beginning. And his mother shall be called Mary. And lo, he cometh unto his own, that salvation might come unto the children of men, even through faith on his name. And even after all this, they shall consider him a man, and they shall say he hath a devil and shall scourge him, and shall crucify him. And he shall rise the third day from the dead. And behold, he standeth to judge the world. That sounds a lot like both Abinadi and Paul's interpretation of gospel. Now, 
our eyes might glaze over a bit with verses like this. This is old news, right? Doesn't everyone know that Jesus did these things, or at least that the New Testament says that Jesus did these things? Yes, but Benjamin doesn't live in a New Testament period. The idea that God will become immortal, suffer as immortal, and die as immortal only to resurrect is a big idea. It's not the first time that we've seen it in the Book of Mormon, but clearly the angel feels that it bears repeating. Now, I mentioned the reference to Isaiah 52, but like Abinadi, the angel clearly doesn't stop with the proclamation of the gospel of joy, but moves right on to themes that we find in Isaiah 53, what is known as the song of the suffering servant. Let's see if we recognize this. This is from Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Israel expected the Messiah to come as a conquering lion. That's how the king is supposed to come to his throne. The good news is that he does conquer, but he does it as the sacrificial lamb. The good news is shared according to the angel by prophets to every kindred nation and tongue that thereby whosoever shall believe that Christ should come, the same might receive remission of their sins and rejoice. He says that the Lord gave his people the law of Moses, filled with signs and wonders and types and shadows, all pointing to the atoning Messiah. I guess the last thing that I want to say about this section is that all of this is foretelling the birth, life, ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. There's so much hope placed on those events and how they would change the world. But that all happened for us 2,000 years ago. And it's worth asking, did the day that they hoped for come true? First, we have to give an emphatic yes. That's the witness of the gospel. But there have been times when it's been difficult for people to find evidence of Jesus' impact in the lives of his followers. There's a quote, probably falsely attributed to Gandhi, that says, Oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. I haven't been able to track down a source for that quote, but the sentiment still hits home. If Jesus really did conquer sin and death, if he really is on his throne already, the King of Kings, and I believe he is, Part of our job as witnesses of those glad tidings is to be evidence of that sacrificial love in the lives of the others and in the world. And I know for a fact that I have fallen short of that at times in my life. Moving on to verses 16 through 22. At first, it almost seems as if the angel has lost his place. He suddenly starts talking about little children, and we aren't really sure how we got there except that we were talking about humanity's dependency on the atonement. 
but the angel has a purpose here beyond simply addressing what we might call original sin. Yes, we learn that little children are redeemed from the problems of mortality through Christ's atonement, but little children are actually the model that the angel holds up for all of us. But men drink damnation to their souls, and remember that's just mortality, except they humble themselves and become as little children and believe that salvation was and is and is to come in and through the atoning blood of Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. Perhaps little children are redeemed because they are inherently humble enough to be redeemable. If we want to be similarly redeemable, we need to become humble like a child. For, he says, the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. This is a classic scripture, but maybe we interpret it in ways that make it less impactful than it could be. The natural man is an enemy to God is a pretty abrupt claim about the depravity of the human condition. But the angel is simply trying to describe the results of the fall, things that we all experience every day. We know that people aren't all good or all evil, but even the best of human efforts still fall short of healing the wounds of mortality. So what's the answer to the natural man? Become a saint. In other words, become holy. And how do you become holy? You begin to yield to the Holy Spirit. And that takes humility. What's that classic quote from Socrates? The only true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing. That sounds like about what the angel is driving at here. Many of us deal with persistent issues of mortality. Maybe we have a physical or mental ailment. Maybe we've been wounded by others. Maybe we have wounded others. The first word that the angel uses to describe the childlike state is submissive. In fact, the essence of being childlike is to be willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child does submit to his father. Submission isn't really a value in our modern Western culture. We gather in large crowds to cheer dominance in winning, whether in athletics or politics. Even within the church, we face the barriers of a feigned perfectionism. We struggle to show each other our wounds. But what if our resistance to our wounds or our attempts to dominate mortality, what if that's the very thing keeping us from being healed by Christ and yielding to the enticings of the Spirit? The fear, of course, with submission is that if we submit to a situation, we'll lose our freedom. That fear then causes us to either fight against a situation or distract ourselves from it because we're so anxious about what's going on. And I think that that is a common thing today. We, you know, we sit down and in our quiet moments, instead of, instead of feeling the anxiety of all of the pressures on us, it's easier to take out our phones and distract ourselves. 
But the actions taken out of fear tend to only lend themselves to further loss of freedom. The angel's point here is that the quote-unquote freedom that comes through trying to dominate mortality is still just drinking damnation. But the freedom that comes with submission to Christ is truly liberating. In fact, that's another word for Savior, liberator. And in the very next line, the angel says, The time shall come when the knowledge of a Savior or liberator shall spread throughout every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And I'm paraphrasing here. But in that day, the only ones who will be free are those who have learned to submit through repentance and faith. Sometimes we think of grace as only good things, as only good gifts. But over and over again in the Book of Mormon, we're reminded that to submit to all things that the Lord shall inflict upon us is to see all of the aspects of mortality as grace. And as Ether says, and as Jacob says, that weakness, the weakness that accompanies mortality that goes all the way down through us, is a gift. And that gift is supposed to invite humility and supposed to turn our hearts toward Christ and open them up to yielding to the enticings of the Holy Spirit so that he can make us truly holy and truly free. The final section of this chapter, verses 23 through 27, conclude the words of the angel with a warning that the knowledge of the gospel, the good news, now brings with it accountability, and that one day Benjamin's people will be called to account. They'll drink the wine of their fruits, so to speak. Now, chapter 2, the first section of Benjamin's speech was a preparation for chapter 3, which is really the heart of Benjamin's speech. And moving on, we'll see the effects of it. But first, in verse 25, we get a sobering but strangely hopeful message from the angel. He says, And if they be evil, they are consigned to an awful view of their own guilt and abominations, which doth cause them to shrink from the presence of the Lord into a state of misery and endless torment, from whence they can no more return. Now, you probably get why that's sobering, but why is it hopeful? Well, this is a different understanding of justice than we are used to having. Terrell Givens explains the Book of Mormon's concept of justice in the following way. The Book of Mormon suggests that we have misunderstood what justice means. For Book of Mormon prophets, justice is neither some unimpeachable cosmic universal nor the inflexible standards of a legalistic heavenly monarch. It is, rather, another name for what, from a human perspective, is simply the honoring of human choice. Genuine moral agency must entail genuine consequences. Choice must be choice of something. In John Stuart Mills's classic treatment, human liberty requires the freedom of doing as we like, subject to the consequences as may follow. If choice is to be more than an empty gesture of will, more than a mere pantomime of decision-making, there must be some guarantee that any given choice will eventuate in the natural consequences connected with that choice. And there's the hope that we can choose, 
In other words, the seeds that we plant and cultivate in our lives will bear fruit. That includes seeds of bitterness, grudges, selfishness, and pride, as well as seeds of faith, repentance, hope, and charity. The consequences that we cannot repair are repairable through the atonement, but we must choose to cultivate a relationship with Christ. Religion in general, and Christianity in particular, is often seen as rigid, moralistic, and dogmatic. That's not the gospel the angel is bringing. Can anyone deny that human beings struggle with living together in peaceable and loving ways? Can anyone overlook the fact that even with all our technology and conveniences, mortality still breaks through? We still lose loved ones. We still suffer. The gospel that the angel preaches is simply that those things have consequences that aren't simply resolved through death. The ripples keep spreading. The atonement as the most impactful act in all eternity is powerful enough to swell and subsume all of those consequences as a larger wave subsumes smaller waves. But we have to let it carry us. Otherwise, we are subject to the waves of our own making. That's not dogmatic. That's just the way the ocean works. That's it for chapter 3 and the words of the angel. It really is the crux of King Benjamin's speech, and it could be the subject of many more episodes, but we've already gone long again today. My advice, especially in theologically heavy chapters like this, is to focus on the logic and then try and understand the doctrinal points. If there's a transition that seems abrupt, like when the angel all of a sudden starts talking about little children, assume that it fits into a larger point and seek to understand that larger point. If you can manage that, the doctrine will become clear and simple. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.